Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon, and please join me in welcoming our television and webcast viewers to today's program. My name is Jennifer Sloan, and I'm president of the Canadian Club of Toronto. And on behalf of the club and our event partner, the Canadian American Business Council, we thank our viewing audience for being with us. The Canadian Club has a long history as the leading current affairs podium in Canada. Led by a volunteer board of directors, we are dedicated to encouraging open and accessible debate on issues that matter to Toronto, to the province, and to our country. Through our Youth and Young Leaders programs, Civic Action Diversity Partnerships, Accessibility Commitments, as well as through our media partnerships and social media properties, we provide opportunities for Canadians around the world to engage with leading political, business, and public figures. Thank you for joining the conversation today. Before I formally introduce our speakers, I'd like to tell you about some of our upcoming events this season. This Thursday, February the 12th, we are proud to welcome to our podium Monique LaRue, Chair of the Board, President and CEO of Desjardins Group, to discuss the merits of the cooperative model in building sustainable prosperity in Canada. And on March 2nd, CP Rail CEO Hunter Harrison will join us to share his thoughts on the North American transportation industry, the transition from cost control to growth, and the realities of regulation in the modern marketplace. For a full listing of the club's upcoming events and to order tickets, please visit our website at canadianclub.org. You can also join the conversation via Twitter and Instagram by following us at CDNCLUBTO or by using that hashtag. And today you can also join us on Instagram using CABC.CO, the Canadian American Business Council. I'd like to express special thanks to today's sponsor, Cool, Top, and Guy represented by Ken Bosenkuhl. Ken, thank you for your generous support in making this event possible, and to Don and Brian as well. I would also like to welcome a group of youth and young leaders from the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs, sponsored by Borealis and CIBC. Thank you for joining us. Student leaders, please stand. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm pleased to introduce this afternoon's guest speakers. For almost two centuries, Canada has enjoyed good relations with its southern neighbor and closest ally, the United States of America. Recently, however, political pundits of every persuasion have noticed a chill in the air. And it's not just those Arctic weather patterns that have been sweeping across both nations. Many point to the acrimonious debate and long delays in approving Keystone XL pipeline. And what about Alaska's recent decision to cancel the rebuilding of the ferry terminal in Prince Rupert, British Columbia? The resistance to the Buy America purchasing rules was clearly not well received. 
The Honorable Frank McKenna, former Canadian Ambassador to the United States, and the Honorable Gordon Giffen, former Ambassador to Canada, are here to weigh in on the issues that impact the North-South relationship. Mr. McKenna was appointed Canadian Ambassador to the United States in 2005. While Ambassador, he helped work through contentious bilateral trade and security issues. He was appointed Deputy Chair of TD Bank Group in 2006, and Mr. McKenna's probably best known public role would be his 10-year leadership of New Brunswick. He served as its Premier from 1987 to 1997. Mr. Giffen served as the 19th U.S. Ambassador to Canada from 1997 to 2001. You may not be aware that the former U.S. Ambassador spent much of his youth on Canadian soil. His family moved to Canada before his first birthday. He lived in Montreal and Toronto for 17 years before returning to America to university studies. Steering the helm today is our very own Don Newman, a trusted and respected public affairs advisor, distinguished journalist, broadcaster, and author, Don is the Chairman of Canada's 2020 Advisory Board, President of Day Newman Network, recipient of the Order of Canada, and our very own Director of the Canadian Club of Toronto. Before signing off his late afternoon slot on CBC, Don ruled the airwaves when it came to political broadcasts. If the issues were not front and centre on Don's show, and it was Don's show, it really wasn't an issue. Before I turn things over to our esteemed guests, I'd like you uh, to invite our live audience to join the conversation by filling out the question cards on your tables, and one of our volunteers will come around to collect them. And now, gentlemen, without further ado, the Canadian Club of Toronto's podium, Canada's podium of record, is now yours. Well, uh, thank you, Jennifer, for that uh, for a nice introduction for all of us. It's pretty shocking, though, when the moderator gets a longer introduction than the panelists. I don't. I, maybe it's because I'm a director here that I had the pull. I just want to say one thing uh, before we start. Um, there are two things in Canada-U.S. relations that uh, Canada needs. One is a good ambassador in Washington, a good Canadian ambassador in Washington, and certainly Frank McKenna met that criteria very well indeed. The other is a good American ambassador in Ottawa and a good American ambassador who has connections in Washington and can get into the White House, can get into the State Department. And Gordon Giffen, I think, in the time that I have been in, Washington, in Ottawa and in Washington, Gordon, you had better connections and were a more effective ambassador than any American that was posted in Ottawa. So I think we're very lucky to have both Frank McKenna and Gordon Giffen with us today. Now, as, as Jennifer said, uh, we're in a rough patch. We're in a rough patch in terms of uh, relations, and the Keystone Pipeline obviously has something to do with it. But, Gordon, is it the Keystone Pipeline that is the problem, or is there a bigger issue than that? I used to be a diplomat. Uh, <laughs> first, if, if I could take 30 seconds, I want to thank John Turner for being here today. It's always a 
Pleasure to, to honor to be with you, sir, a former prime minister of this great country. And I remember visiting your office and seeing the pictures of Bobby Kennedy. And um, it, it's great to be in your presence. Uh, Michael Wilson, another former Canadian ambassador. Uh, an, an extraordinary uh, public servant in Canada and someone who actually represented the riding that I went to high school in, uh, and, and which, and many of you may not realize that the current Prime Minister of Canada actually went to Richview Collegiate, the high school that I graduated from. Uh, I know he masquerades as a Calgarian, but he, went, <laughs> he, he actually graduated from Richview Collegiate. Um, and to Cool Top and Guy, thank, thank you guys for uh, your sponsorship. Um, there's no doubt that the Keystone experience has um, taken on an emblematic character about how we work together. Uh, and that's unfortunate that any one project, I mean, it's, very, it's an important project. I think it ought to be built. I think it's in... North America's interests. I think it's certainly in the U.S. national interest, which ultimately is the legal assessment that has to be made in in our system. And I think it's unfortunate that it's taken the twists and turns that it has. But it's become much too much of a symbol of the relationship, uh, much more than it, it warrants. I know a lot of people uh, are frustrated with the president about it, but remember it was a Republican governor of Nebraska that stopped the project for quite some time because of the route it was taking within his own state. <clears throat> and I, I like to point out that last time I checked, you weren't exactly rushing to build the Gateway Pipeline um, in Canada because of provincial issues. So. Uh, we ought to be a little more cognizant that these local things can be a problem. But I have to say that, that in my experience, the chemistry at the top matters. And, and um, you know, one could uh, suggest that the chemistry at the top right now is not as warm as it's been at some times in our history. Um, I think that may be more... Um, uh, I'll, I'll run the risk of saying I think that may be uh, more as a result of our side of the border um, rather than your side of the border. Uh, but I, I, I don't... The pipeline has um, sort of distorted the dialogue, but I don't think it's all about the pipeline. Frank, uh, is the <clears throat> pipeline really just uh, the symptom of the larger problem then? that, uh, as Gordon says, the chemistry at the top isn't very good. But uh, and first, if you agree with that, you tell me who you think is responsible mainly for that. I mean, obviously, everybody is responsible, but there seems to me that uh, if I could be uh, If you call the President of the United States uh, for refusing a, a, a proposal that it's a no-brainer, you're really calling him stupid. And it seems to me that that's a not poor way to get along with anybody, but particularly the President of the United States. <clears throat> well, to start with, I want to say hello to everybody that Gordon didn't say hello to. <laughs> <laughs> that, oh, I that, meant that. to say hello to Jim Dickmeyer, too, the <laughs> Consul General of the United States. They're all really important people. <laughs> Thank you that for coming. That won't take you very long. <laughs> uh, so, so, so uh, I, I, think that, I think that there's a, a bit of a 
a, a difference, uh, an important difference in this dispute over a lot of the other ones that we've had. Uh, we've had a lot of disputes. Uh, uh, certainly the free trade agreement and acid rain were disputes. Uh, but at the top level, uh, the president and prime minister got them done. We had a we had a difficult situation with softwood lumber when I was there, and uh, the prime minister and the president authorized myself, Susan Schwab on their side, and later Michael Wilson to try and uh, mm-hmm. negotiate something, and eventually something was done. We had the mad cow uh, disease problem when I was there, but the president was on our side, uh, and so on and so on. The mad this, cows were on your side too. They were. <laughs> <laughs> Most of them were on your side of the border. <laughs> Only difference is you used to shovel a hole and bury them. <laughs> we used to report them. Uh, but, uh, but, that's but the not, that's the three S policy, right? Shovel, <laughs> shoot, shoot, shovel, and shut up. Right. Yeah, that's right. So, so the difference here, though, is that it's not the the Congress that's the problem. It's the president. And so I think that's quite different. And I think that's why Canadians who, who tend to like the president a lot uh, uh, find this frustrating in the extreme, that uh, the president is, uh, is so stubborn on this issue, even though a Secretary of State report would have, uh, would have given him cover to approve it. So that makes it quite qualitatively different, I think, from other issues. So having said that very quickly, I think there is a chemistry issue at the top. Normally, presidents and prime ministers have been able to bridge a lot of differences as a result of their personal chemistry. And in this case, that seems to be lacking, and I think both sides have to be blamed for that. And I think, finally, as Canadians, we have to say to ourselves, shame on us. Because even though we can't get that pipeline built across the border, we can't get pipelines built in Canada either. And if we could get pipelines built in Canada we would have no trouble, I can guarantee you, getting that pipeline across the border. Because I don't think the United States would like it very much if we were diverting our oil to other markets around the world. That also would take away the argument of the EPA, which said if Canada can't get their their uh, oil, heavy oil, to market at these prices, uh, trains won't do the, the, the job because of the, the difference in cost. But if we could get our oil to market on both coasts, that would negate that argument as well. So shame on us. We haven't been able to uh, get world prices for oil. We're losing massive amounts of Canadian wealth in the economic rents that we're charging. So we need to fix our problem at home as well as having a better relationship with the United States. And as part of the problem, Gordon, that if we had a, a better environmental regime governing the oil sands, that that would take away some of the complaints or some of the issues that the president has referred to as he's been considering the... No. The, no? That, I don't, you don't I, think that the environment has I, anything to do with it? No, I think that's a red herring. Um, the alternative for the United States right now is we, we've got um, a, a line of refineries along the Gulf Coast of the United mm-hmm. States, Texas and Louisiana particularly, and and they're all configured to refine heavy oil. Mm-hmm. None of them refine West Texas intermediate light sweet crude. So they have to get heavy oil from somewhere. The alternative, if it's not from Alberta, is going to be Venezuela. Do you think Venezuela has ever spelled the word environment? I mean, the difference between the the environmental regime in Canada and, and Venezuela should take that argument right off the table. Secondly... Actually, Canada has done quite a bit about, and Alberta, both governments, federal and and provincial, have done quite a bit. 
um, to improve um, the environmental impact of, of the fossil fuel industry um, in Canada. And, and, and the industry itself in Canada is doing a dramatic amount, making a lot of investment in technology. So, and technology is going to be the solution. Uh, I think everybody realizes that. So I think it's a total red herring uh, from those who oppose the development of the oil sands, uh, because I, I, I think it's actually probably the most responsible development of fossil fuels that's going on in the, in the world uh, today, and, and, and the alternatives are much worse. And it's not like the U.S. is going to stop using if this was a, we would stop using fossil fuels if there was no oil coming across the 49th parallel. That might be an interesting debate. <laughs> but it's the use of the fossil fuels, not the production, that, that is the large emitter. It's us running around in our cars and trucks in the United States that's making the impact. It's not the production. Well, then, again, it's a shame on us for not making that clearer in the United States because the opponents of Keystone in the United States talk about the environmental degradation of the, of the oil sands. And the president said, not, uh, well, in the past few months, that there was really no oil that was going to help the United States. It was just coming down to the Gulf and then was going to be exported. And, in fact, quite a bit of the oil actually comes from North Dakota as well. Correct. Yeah, I thought the president was very mischievous in his statement. First of all, he depreciated Canada almost as a trading partner. And secondly, he was wrong in his facts. As much as a third of that oil will be back in crude going down from the, from the United States. And it was not designed for export. It's designed to be consumed in U.S. refineries. So I think he's, just, he's been very wrong in his facts and very mischievous in the way he's treated it. But having, having said that, um, there's... What, what you said, I think, about the, uh, about the essence of the issues, right? There's an interesting article in Al Jazeera of all places this morning that frames it up. And it says, in 2011, the environmental movement in the United States decided uh, that they were losing an awful lot of battles. They had to pick one that they could fight. And this was one that required a presidential permit. And, uh, and, and they felt they could win it, and they focused all of their attention on it. And they were able to inflame this issue to the point where they made it a proxy for carbon-based fuels, period. And that's what we're fighting. We're not fighting a pipeline. We have 70 pipelines crossing the border to the United States. In the last month, we opened up two pipelines all the way down to the Gulf Coast, Flanagan South and Seaway 2, that'll take a million barrels of oil, more than Keystone. So this is not a fight about a pipeline. This is a proxy battle that's being fought, and the president has decided, I think, uh, to make this a legacy issue for him, and we have not been able to, at the top level, communicate um, a rationale for doing it. I, I don't differ with Gordon, perhaps, on the climate change, except to say this. I think we should have, <clears throat> we should be showing leadership on climate change as a country, both for our international audience and also providing s- some cover uh, with the President of the United States and creating some uh, strong arguments uh, that would have more moral, uh, a, a, a better moral basis. But uh, to think that would itself sway the uh, the debate. I'm not sure that that would be the result, no. So, Gordon, and, and then, Frank, you come in on this, too. To uh, postpone or even cancel, I'm not sure which he did, the Three Amigos meeting with uh, the presidents of Mexico and the United States, as the prime minister did recently, uh, was that a mistake? Just, I mean, I would have thought when you were ambassador in Ottawa that, by and large, 
The Canadian government was always trying to get FaceTime with the president, who happened at that time to be Bill Clinton. And I would think when you were... Who was glad to have FaceTime with anybody? <laughs> we won't go there. Which will... We'll. <laughs> and, and I would think that when you were in Washington, you were always getting calls saying, well, can't we get FaceTime with the president? Ooh. So, Gordon, canceling a meeting, which guarantees you some FaceTime, even if it's not <clears> going to be the best FaceTime, uh, was a mistake. I don't think it was a mistake. Actually, I, th I, I actually thought it was a good move. I, I, I think you have got to, uh, you, uh, I think when one is involved in a dialogue that, that uh, is not working well, you can't just pretend it's working. And you have to take steps that indicate you're a little unhappy with how it's working. Um, so I, I have no idea why the prime minister did it. He may have had nothing to do with that. But when I when I saw that that was occurring, I thought that's a pretty good idea. Uh, number one. Number two. I am not a fan, frankly, of the trilateral meetings. There, uh, nothing much gets done uh, because there. I'm a fan of the bilateral relationship, and and our the U.S. relationship with Canada is dramatically different than it mm -hmm. is with, with Mexico. And, and the issues that are discussed are, are materially different. The thing, that I, the thing that I think sometimes Canada makes the mistake in is thinking that or acting like the business or the relationship with the United States is transactional. That it's all about how much stuff crosses the border, how much we sell to each other. And that's the whole conversation you hear most of the time in Canada. The Canada-U.S. relationship historically has been much bigger than that. We're partners around the world. We're partners in all of the trouble spots in the world. We're partners in NATO. We're partners in the OECD. We're every alphabet organization you can think of, Canada and the United States are part of. And I can tell you during my day, Bill Clinton and Jacques Chrétien spent as much time talking about and conspiring about international and global affairs as they did about the stuff we sell to each other. The fact that they did that actually made the bond so much stronger that it was much easier to work out the stuff we sell to each other business because they were partners in a global enterprise, and, and I think we're losing sight of that when we get it down to only talking <laughs> about a bridge and a pipeline. Uh, but not to, but not but to diminish them, they're important, but, 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 but when but the dialogue is always about a bridge and a pipeline, yeah. uh, we're, we're demeaning the, the value of the relationship. Can, but can, yeah, no, pick up on that. Yeah, I uh, I don't disagree with, with what Gordon said, but uh, you so, could say I so, agree. So, uh, <laughs> 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 I was trained no, not to do that. <laughs> in uh, I, I have to ask Don Guy on that. Would, would that be okay? <laughs> okay. Uh, so I, I would come at it this way: uh, you've you've been reasonably hard on your president, and and I think that's been candid and honest and accurate, but. I want to. I want to be a little, a little bit. Um, uh, I think uh, critical of our government as well. Uh, I think what Gordon said is absolutely accurate. But I don't think that we're necessarily aligned well with the United States on foreign policy at the moment either. I think there are irritants there. Uh, there are rumblings that even on the trade agenda that we uh, we're not aligned uh, perfectly on TPP. Uh, I think we're definitely unaligned 
uh, when, when it comes to Iran. Uh, the United States is urgently requ- trying to find some type of rapprochement that will avoid a war. And Canada is basically throwing grenades over the ramparts, saying, can't trust Iran, don't trust Rouhani, uh, you know, things, uh, uh, don't trust those guys. Well, with respect, we're not going to be the ones carrying the load if anything goes bad there. Similarly, in the Holy Land, I think that there's some distance between ourselves and the United States. The United States has a different responsibility from us. They need to try to bring peace to the world because they're the only real policemen left in the world. And I think at times, uh, in the last number of years, Canada's been more bellicose than helpful. And I would say that we are not as well aligned on some of the policy objectives uh, as we were in the past. Gordon, do you think that's true? Would you not disagree with Frank on that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, well. Uh, and, and is that partly because there aren't the kind of conversations that were between Chrétien and Clinton, and they're not there because of the way that they're handling, or both sides, I suppose, are handling the, the pipeline, which, as you say, is really just a pipeline. There's no way to get out of that question without getting in trouble. Um, uh, the, the, um, I have no idea what conversations take place between the current president and the current prime minister. I will tell you that during my day, President Clinton and Jean Chrétien spoke frequently. Um, and and, and um, there, there was a. It, it was fascinating to watch the two of them. Mr. Krejcian took the lesson, and you know another thing when you when you watch Canada-U.S. dynamics, Brian Mulroney was probably as effective as any prime minister dealing with American presidents. He got criticized for that in Canada and was treated as if he were some sycophant of the American president. He wasn't. He was a colleague and a trusted partner who actually affected U.S. policy because of um, the kind of relationship he had with President Reagan and and President Bush. Um, Mr. Krejcian took from that that I think he learned the right lesson, meaning it's still good to have a good relationship, mm-hmm. but don't advertise it in Canada because you'll be criticized for it. And and uh, his relationship with Bill Clinton literally was like an older and younger brother. Bill Clinton loved Jacques Chrétien. He went to Mont-Tremblant, Quebec, and made a speech on federalism mm-hmm. at a at a conference that had been taken over by um, the the then uh, party in power in Quebec that was not actually in favor of the Canadian experience. And Bill Clinton showed up as President of the United States and talked about the vitality of federalism. Um, it's a game changer. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and how you could accommodate differences in a mm-hmm. country uh, within the framework of, of federalism. And, and at the end of that conference, when the President of the United States and I were walking out of the hotel where he made the speech, he looked at me and he said, you know, I didn't come here for the Prime Minister of Canada. I came here for my friend Jean Chrétien. Huh? Enough said. We've, we've seen a lot of the other, by the way, and, and still the relationship works, but back in the day when uh, uh, Pearson was prime minister mm-hmm. and Nixon was the president, Pearson went to Washington and gave a speech condemning the Viet- Vietnamese. Johnson. Johnson was president. Johnson was president. Yeah. <laughs> and, that's right, and, and condemning the Vietnam War, 
Uh, he had to see Johnson later, and apparently Johnson grabbed, grabbed him by the lapels, lifted him up like that, and he said, you came here and pissed on my rug. Don't do that again. So yeah. we've had some uh, We've had some really... Uh, Pearson may have been right. <laughs> uh, well, I think he was right. And Defen Baker and Kennedy did not get along at all. Uh, so there's lots of... Well, and even Trudeau and Nixon and Trudeau and Reagan were well, not close. Trudeau, yeah. yeah, that's right. Uh, Nixon called... In his memoirs, he called Trudeau an asshole. Yeah. And when Trudeau's reminded That's why I of that, judged he's, he didn't get along. Yeah, he's, he said that I've been called worse by better people. So. <laughs> <laughs> but but when Mr. Trudeau passed away, a former American president came to the funeral. Yeah. Jimmy yeah. Carter came to the funeral. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the relationship is bigger. Let's not over dramatize this. The relationship is bigger than how any two current leaders or leaders at the time relate to each other. It's just, it's a lot bigger, it's more vital, there's more history to it, even though one of the things that y'all spent a lot of time celebrating recently was the War of 1812. Um, (laughs) The the, the thing I would have to point out, it was the British that entered Washington, not the Canadians. (laughs) You don't get get to claim everything they did. That seems to us a picayune point, but anyway. <laughs> well, I noticed we didn't toast to the Queen. <laughs> just, just out of courtesy to you. Um, a question from the audience, and, and this is it's germane in the sense that uh, for quite a while now, Canadian authorities have said, basically, we're going to have the kind of environmental policy the United States does because we're not going to put ourselves at a, comp- at a competitive uh, disadvantage. So... Um, First, Frank, and then Gordon. Is there any possibility on the uh, on the possibility of uh, Canadian leadership and American leadership on climate change, uh, or is that now uh, probably too late to, to happen? But we'll have some kind of a joint approach on. Yeah, I would like to see that. Um, Theoretically, I, I agree with the submission, by the way. It's, it's quite difficult. I don't think it's impossible, but it's quite difficult uh, for Canada to go it alone mm-hmm. in a continent where we're so, uh, we're so connected. But I, I believe, even rhetorically in Canada, that we should be more forward-leaning about climate change and, uh, and give ourselves more cover and perhaps introduce uh, some cover for provincial uh, schemes uh, mm-hmm. That are in various forms, BC, Alberta, Quebec, uh, moving moving the ball down the field. But I don't know. There's a report that we've actually invited the United States to negotiate a, uh, a a joint agreement on climate change. I don't know if that's true or not. But it seems to me we should be constantly putting that in the window and trying to see if we can uh, if if we if we could negotiate an agreement like that. I think with the Republicans now, uh, many of whom are climate change deniers. Uh, in charge, I think it's going to be impossible or virtually impossible to do. But I think that we should be more, much more rhetorically um, uh, disposed towards trying to find a solution than we are. Gordon, do you think it's yeah. oh, impossible I, to do with the Republicans in, in control? Oh, don't get me off on Republican control. Uh, <laughs> that'd take all day. The, 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 no, I don't think it's impossible to do, and I, 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 I do think Canada has implied an interest in doing that. I actually think I might call the United States' bluff on, on the question and be more vocal about exactly. it, uh, saying we're ready to do business, but we're not going to negotiate with ourselves. Let's do something together and 
at least the northern part of North America. Again, if you try and bring Mexico into it, and I'm a, ultimately I'm a big fan of North America and being more economically as opposed to politically integrated, but but it's going to take more time to, to yeah. bring Mexico along. NAFTA in one way was a disadvantage because it caused a lot of people to say, well, it's three equal economies, three equal mm-hmm. Uh, uh, democracies, and it, that's not true. We just should, we should have worked together better to bring Mexico along than we did, rather than just acting like they were the same at the same stage as we are. But I, I think on the environment, the opportunities there, and potentially could change the discussion about fossil fuels if um, you know there was a more declarative um, let let let's see what we can do together uh, presentation. In the short term, with the Canadian election by October, maybe before, but probably by October, and with the American election cycle... uh, Never ending. Never never ending, but from time to time there's an election actually held, and and it'll (laughs) be in 2016, the presidential election and uh, congressional elections. Uh, Are we sort of in a holding pattern, do you think, Gordon, until... Uh, those elections are out of the way? I don't think so. I mean, we might end up, because of the dynamic in our elections, a year from now, once we get into 2016, we might end up into a little bit of a holding pattern. But I don't, I don't think we necessarily have to be in a holding pattern now. I mean, you've got to dare to succeed. Um, and, and, and um, you know, oftentimes I've found that Canada has to be the demandeur in the relationship mm-hmm. to challenge us to do something. Because the inertia in the United States is hard to overcome if you don't sort of kick us in the shin and say, you know, let's do something. So I'm reading this book about Churchill and Roosevelt and how Churchill almost every day, you know, in 1939 and 1940 and early 1941, almost every day got up thinking, how do I get that guy Roosevelt into the war? <clears throat> well, you know, it took him two years. And well, Pearl Harbor. And Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, Roosevelt was, to his credit, he was inching us in that direction. Thing, yeah. But but so there's a history to us being slow to act. When we act, by damn, get out of the way. But it takes a while for us to get there. So um, I, I wouldn't lose sight of the fact that just a chess game with us is not the right way to go. You, you, you have to be more of a demander. Frank, how do you feel about the election cycle? Do you agree? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I thought, I thought well, it was well, brilliant, well, actually. <laughs> well, well, that is always, I guess, the problem, is that uh, we're not front of mind in Washington, and we never are front of mind because we're not a crisis, but we have to, from our point of view, be front of mind. And it seems to me that perhaps with the Canadian government more aligned to the Republicans in Congress and to the president, the president doesn't want to do very much for Canada either because in some ways he's doing it for the Republicans in Congress. Frank, what do you think? Yeah, I don't think that's the the case, Don. Um, It's funny, uh, the the comment that that you you, you made about... uh, uh, Because I I went through that in my time in Washington where I felt it was very hard to get Mm -hmm. uh, FaceTime the administration on issues, and I complained to Condoleezza Rice one day. I said, we're not getting uh, enough attention. And she said, 
you really don't want attention from us. We save all of our attention for bad people. And, <laughs> and, and, and there's more yeah. truth uh, than not in that. The United States, we have to remember, this is a very asymmetric relationship. We've got a country of, what, 30-some million people mm-hmm. huddled along the northern border here, and uh, generally things go along fine. The United States has got a huge country, well over 300 million people, responsible for just about every trouble spot in the world. You know, when, when, when the, the prime minister, the premier of North Korea, goes on one of his monthly rants, he doesn't demand to speak to the prime minister of Canada. He wants to do business with the United States mm-hmm. of America. And, uh, and when the Middle East goes up in flames, the first call goes to the United States. Iran problem's got to be fixed, the United States of America. And, uh, and the United States uh, makes huge friends, but they also make enormous enemies, and they spend a lot of time managing global affairs. In many ways, it's flattering to us as Canadians that we're taken for granted from time to time, because that's what you do with friends and family. And I think our relationship is such that uh, there's an element of that takes place. But it comes about as, as not out of lack of goodwill, but out of the asymmetry of the relationship. And uh, so I, I don't read too much into that. And I don't think that who's in Congress, Republicans or Democrats, would change the view of the government of Canada. You do business with whoever's there. Uh, we've all experienced that. And just very briefly, um, in the next up to the Canadian election. Is, is there going to be anything dramatic in Canada-U.S. relations? Yes? No? Yes, no? Uh, the pipeline will get approved. Yep. It will get, appro- will one, it get approved? One, one, one way or the other. Yeah. Well, I, I, because I the Republicans will attach it to a budget bill or something like that? There's some chance that it will have to come through Congress. I, I, I will suggest to you, I mean, again, the, the, the Republicans are the choir on this issue. It, it, unless you can pick up you, Mm-hmm. The, unless the proponents of the pipeline can pick up uh, a marginal five or six Democrats in the Senate, um, it won't succeed. One of the strategic, you know, our system is different than yours. And people think here, okay, the Republicans mm-hmm. in, are in charge mm-hmm. of both houses. They can do what they want. Not true. they got to get a handful of moderate Democrats in the mm-hmm. Senate. Don't ignore them. They're, they're, they're the pivot point on this issue. So I think the pipeline, the pipeline is in our national interests in the United States. It, is, it needs to go forward, in my view. Uh, unrelated, um, very respectfully, to Canada, or the decision should be made on the national interest of the United States under our law, and I think the answer should be yes using that test. So I think that'll be something dramatic, and I think when we have the second President Clinton, the the <laughs> the relationship uh, will be very good. Well, that's not till 2017. Well, even if your prediction is correct. <laughs> Frank, just quick, do you think the pipeline will be approved? Um, I think I've thought all along that it would be approved, but I think now it's it's very problematic. I think uh, it would have to be as a result of of some of the machinations that you've talked about, uh, attaching it to another bill that the president can't approve. Or some, or can't veto, or or Canada puts in the window some type of climate change discussion that gives the president cover or something. Uh, short of that, I don't see the the four or five votes to become veto-proof happening. But I have to say, Gord's much more of an expert on 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 in reading Congress than I would be or counting votes. But I, I don't see it at this stage. I think the other thing that would put pressure on, I think we. I say this respectfully again. We've got to have deal pressure here. And start with we've got to clean up 
ourselves and, and, and create the world's leading environmental technologies as a result of uh, our extractive technologies uh, being used in that manner. And then we have to get access to tidal water so that we can get access to world markets. I think the United States will find it is in their national security interest to secure that supply from Canada. But they may not come to that realization until they realize that we have other choices. And uh, those other choices will command better prices and also uh, get attention from south of the border. Well, gentlemen, I wish we could go on and on. But you've been yeah, very insightful. You, and I thank you both for being here. It's nice to see you, Gordon, and nice to see you, of course, Thanks. always frank. And uh, I'd like to ask Farah Mohammed now from the board oh. to, come to uh, come to the podium. Welcome to the broadcast. <laughs> oh, oh, you're right <laughs> to say that. Um, first of all, thank you very much, Ambassadors, for being here, for joining us, for your insight, your humor, your candor. I think what we just saw was diplomacy in action. Um, I think for all the students who are here from schools, this is what uh, good conversations with good countries who actually care about one another looks like. And so for with that, thank you very much. Me, we could work this well, I was, that was my next comment was, look, I think uh, we, have a, we have a term here in Canada. It's called four more years. So I think that we'll put that into action at some point. Um, you know, when we were, I was listening to you talk and I thought about your, your historical comments um, and flashing back to things that were really important in the Canadian-American landscape, and it reminded me that there are essentials that matter. Diplomacy matters. Chemistry matters. Leadership matters and responsibility matters. And so for your comments on behalf of the Canadian Club, thank you very much. Don, to you, thank you for navigating these two gentlemen, they are, are not easy. I saw them over lunch, and I thought we were going to have to separate them. So thank you very much for, <laughs> for managing them. Uh, and I, I, uh, I thank you for allowing me the opportunity to um, say thanks on behalf of the club. Thank you. Thanks, Farah. And I would, too, like to thank Don, Frank, and, and, and Gordon for an insightful discussion today. And as a U.S.-Canada, U.S. junkie, it was uh, could listen to you guys all afternoon. But thank you very much. And our sincere thanks once again go to today's event sponsor, Cool, Top, and Guy, for making this event possible. Thank you very much. Before I adjourn today's meeting, I'd like to draw your attention to the event survey cards on each of your tables. The Canadian Club is always looking for ways to improve your experience, so please take a minute to help us by sharing your thoughts and comments, including whether you like this year's new shortened luncheon format. Uh, we very much appreciate your feedback. This concludes our program today, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We'd like to thank MediaEvents.ca, Canada's online event space, for live webcasting today's event. We're also grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of Canadian Club events. To learn more about the club and our upcoming events, please visit us at www.canadianclub.org. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Our meeting is now adjourned.